Well, this morning we are going to continue to make our way through the Westminster Larger Catechism. And as I mentioned last week, we're going to, this is kind of part two of question seven. Okay, it's, a, it's a very thorough and meaty uh, question and answer. And so uh, today we are going to be focusing on the communicable attributes of God. If you remember last week, we focused on the incommunicable attributes. And before uh, we dive in here, let me open us with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to come and to study now. And we pray that your spirit would be at work to teach us much about the truths of your word, even about your person, character, uh, who you are, Lord. And uh, we pray that we would continue to stand in awe and grow in that awe and wonder in you as we consider your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, just by means of review, uh, let's go ahead and take out our review sheet for uh, the first six questions of the catechism. The first six questions... All right, I'll say the question and then we'll respond with the answer. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. How doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. What is the word of God? The holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. How doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God, by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it, that they are the very word of God. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what God is to, concerning God, excuse me, man, what duty requires of man. Thank you, y'all got it right. What do the scriptures make known of God? The scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. Very good. And now once again, take out your handout on question seven. And let's say question seven together. What is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, 
long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. All right, very good. So who can tell me and who can remind us this morning what it means when we say and refer to God's incommunicable attributes? What are we referring to there? God's incommunicable attributes. What does incommunicable mean? Can't be shared, right? They are uh, characteristics and attributes of God that uh, solely belong to him, right? Are only true of him. Kind of like what we talked about last week in um, the use of the term communicable disease, right? That, on the other hand, is is meaning that that disease or that illness can be shared, right? It can be passed on from person to person. Uh, we could say that a person is contagious if, they're, uh, if they have a disease that is communicable, right? Um, and so in a similar way, uh, we find that the communicable attributes of God are those attributes that are true of him, uh, but also they are attributes and uh, characteristics that he shares with man, right? And that he uh, gives us in some form uh, to also to reflect and to have. So where do we see this begin in question and answer number seven? We see this begin in his discussion and pre- or the divine's discussion and presentation of God being most wise, okay? So we see this most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious. God is the epitome. He is the definition of these things. Um, This is what God is, right? And um, and so yet he does call us also, for example, in the first one there, most wise. He calls us to be wise. He gives us wisdom. From him, right? Heavenly wisdom, divine wisdom. In contrast, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians in the, the morning sermon series, um, he, he contrasts in the scriptures divine wisdom with worldly wisdom, right? The wisdom of this world. Let's turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Let's read the uh, Paul's concluding benediction here. We can begin at verse 25. If you have it, go ahead and call it out. I got it. You got it? Go ahead. Now, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So when we're talking about wisdom, what does it mean to be wise? And what does it mean that God is most wise? I've already alluded to it a little bit in, in how I introduced it, but Maybe let's put a little bit more meat to those bones. What is wisdom? 
Uh, if somebody were to ask you, do you think that you're wise, or do you know, or are you familiar with wisdom? And if you were to say, well, yes, or even if you were to say, well, no, I don't think I am very much, that would indicate and that would communicate that you had some idea as to what wisdom is, right? How would you define, how would you share what wisdom is with somebody else? Discernment between right and wrong. Okay. Um, and in that discernment, what is involved, right? You're 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 weighing all things, right? And by the grace of God and the work of God, you're um, in accordance with His Word. Importantly, um, you're determining what is best, right? What is right? What is correct? Um, Sometimes wisdom may have nuanced degrees, right? You may have you may have things that, for example, you're trying to make a wise decision, and you have two things that are very close to each other um, in value, right? Um, neither of them is necessarily wrong according to God's word, but you're trying to make a wise choice between the two, and so you're weighing. Uh, you're weighing those things and trying to discern which is best, right? So then wisdom really is, right, the, the Lord uh, gives us in, in Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, um, as well as throughout the, the scriptures, um, the Lord gives us very clear pictures of what is wise and what is foolish, right? The opposite of wisdom is foolishness, Right? So God is most wise. There is no foolishness in God. Right? He's perfect. He's pure. Um, it's against his character to be foolish. He cannot be foolish. Um, he knows all things. His omniscience undergirds and, and is part of uh, the reason why he is also perfectly wise, uh, you know, in addition to his, uh, his perfection. Right? So, but... He is most wise. In other words, there is none wiser than him, right? There is none who uh, could, uh, you know, stand with him, so to speak, and they would make the wiser conclusion than he would, or, you know, th that's not possible, right? Um, he is the epitome. He is the definition. He is the dispenser of all true wisdom. And so, therefore, what is also true, right? As we see in Corinth, in, in, uh, in the church in Corinth, he, he is then the one who speaks infallibly, right? He is the one who speaks perfectly in defining what is truly foolish, right? And what is, uh, what is truly wrong, right? He lays the definitions for right and wrong and makes those delineations clear. And so this also, um, if you've done any study in uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, this also helps us to understand uh, many things. In many of the chapters, especially in the earlier chapters of the Confession, we hear phrases like in introducing the chapter, say on providence, or say on decrees, or say on others, that God in his most wise counsel, right, 
or according to it. We see reference to that often. And that's important because we see that his wisdom is not just in decision making, but his wisdom is also undergirding his actions, right? He's undergirding and a part of all that he does, right? And so therefore, as we study scripture and as we look at all of his wonderful works, as we consider his decrees, as we consider redemption itself, we see it and how he planned and carried that out. We see and we can't rightly come against him and say, no, you messed up in this, God. You didn't do this completely right. Or it wasn't really the most wise or the wisest thing to do here or there. No, we see that that undergirds our study and understanding of his providence, right? Especially in regards to his providence, because sometimes that's where we have questions about why did God allow something to happen in our life or come to pass? And we need to be able to come back to his character, to who he is, and understand that he is indeed the most wise. He is the definition, the epitome of this. And so therefore, he can and must be trusted. And he can and must be thought of as wise. And so we study as to why that is, even if we may not understand it in the moment. But God is also most holy. He is also most holy. Does anybody know what holiness means? If you were to put it in other words, and again, if you were to describe it to a friend, what does holiness mean? When we say that God is holy, or even, um, you know, in uh, Paul says and, uh, and communicates the word of God in saying that we are to be holy because he is holy, right? That God is holy. Um, so holiness is required of us. What, what does it mean that God is holy? Good. Very good. Yep. He's set apart. Right. He is the perfect one. He is unique. He is pure. Right. Um, yep. And and holiness. And and as we consider him being most holy, and then his call to us to be holy because he is holy. As we consider uh, often Paul's words regarding us being and addressing us as the holy ones. Right. Uh, the Hagioi, um, we see that we are those who have been set apart unto God. Right? We are different from the world, and that's important. Right? We have been separated, set apart, made different from the world, and holy unto him. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, if somebody could grab that. Okay, thank you. And then uh, somebody else grab Revelation 15, verse 4. You have it? Excellent. Go ahead, go ahead and let's do Isaiah 6, 3 first. Okay. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All right, very good. Holy, holy, holy. There's a hymn according to that name, is it not? Um, <clears throat> why, why do we, and we call this in this 
three holies. We say that God is thrice holy. Um, why do we say that? Why, why is this holy, holy, holy stated? Is, is it just to, to be repetitious and in that repetition to communicate importance of that holiness and ascribing holiness in God, to God uh, in praise? Is that what it is? Or is there something else to it? Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's referring to the Trinity, right? The Father is holy. The Son is holy, and the Holy Spirit is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. All right, First um, Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, I'll go ahead and read that. Um, and I'll back up to verse 13 for context. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy. For I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Why do you think that God calls us? We recognize the attribute here that the divine point out that again, He is most holy. Why does God, the Holy One, call us to be holy? He makes us holy, right? But he also calls us to be holy in all of our conduct. Why is that? Why does he say, be holy, for I am holy? Did anybody else have any thoughts about that? Revelation 15, verse 4. Um, did who have that? Go ahead and read it. I can't remember who called it out. But. Oh, you did. Yes, go ahead. Just to flesh out this holiness a little bit more, and God's call for us to be holy as He is holy, we need to remember that that as the people of God, right, as the church, we are to be set apart from sin, right, and we are to be we're, we are called unto the service of God, right. So we are to be set apart from sin. We are to flee from sin. We are to mortify sin. Um, and we are to serve God in faithful obedience. And as the Lord, as we say, uh, based on the teaching of Scripture, as the Lord in, uh, in sanctification grows us in godliness, grows us in holiness. Right? And so we see that the standard 
uh, of and the motivation for holiness is really this absolute and this absolute moral perfection of God himself. Because he is holy, therefore we must be holy. But God is also most just. Okay, so he is most wise, he is most holy, he is also most just. Okay, what does just mean? What does just mean? And maybe it's helpful to think of it in terms of what it is not. Right? If somebody is unjust, what are you saying they are? Unfair. They're unfair. Okay. They're lawbreakers. They're breaking God's law. Right? Um, yeah, they're not weighing things rightly, so to speak, in the scales of justice. Right? Uh, they may be cheats. Right? Maybe even think of the tax collectors um, in Scripture who uh, would... Um, would uh, rig the scales, right? So that not only could would the taxes to Caesar uh, be paid, but also they could get a little bit off the top. Yeah. Psalm 89, verses 13 and 14. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand. I, your right hand, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Very good. And so, how do you, how would you say, Elder Turkshire, that that passage helps us to understand what being, what just and God being most just is? God is the origin of all concepts of justice right. and righteousness. There is none besides Him. Right. Yeah. That's very good. Very good. Um, somebody look up uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. And I'm going to read Romans 3, verse 5. Go ahead and read Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the law. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous very good. So what did you hear in that passage? Similar to and kind of connected to what Elder Terpstra said there, God is the definition of what is just. He is the definition of justice. He is the perfect conveyor and executor of justice. Right? And so when we need to evaluate justice, we have to start with him. Right? We have to begin with him, and, and really end with him too, right? Um, because he is the one in all of his works and all of his acts that show uh, what that is and how it is true. Romans chapter 3, verse 5 says this, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust? 
who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. Meganoito in the Greek. That's the strongest, most emphatic way to say no. Absolutely not. There is no possible way that that is true, right? For then how will God judge the world? Okay. And so we see this, even this specific matter and issue that Paul raises the question right to the with the saints in Rome we see that play out in our world right for people want to know and they scratch their heads and they even raise doubt or a fist against anyone who would claim that God would be a god of wrath as a result of his justice right but Paul speaks to that here doesn't he Right? He's saying if we're, if what if what was just said is true, is, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? No, he's not. May, may it never be. No, because it's God who judges the world. It's God who judges the world and it's Christ who when he returns and he judges the world uh, in what it, what will he judge it in? In righteousness. Right? Complete, complete pure righteousness. Complete pure justice. It will, uh, it will transpire, it will be affected exactly in the perfect way according to what is true and right. But again, God is the definition of that. So God is most wise, he is most holy, he is most just. Right? He's also most merciful and gracious. Let's look at Psalm 117. Psalm 117. Psalm 117 is a very long psalm, isn't it? No. Very short psalm, two verses. Let's read it. Let's read it out loud together. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Well, I know. Actually, let me just read it. We may have different translations. <laughs> Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So what do we see here? Praise is due. Praise is right to the thrice holy God. And, in specific here, we see who is to praise the Lord. All of the Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, everyone, everywhere, laud him. And why? For his merciful kindness is great toward us. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of mercy. And what is mercy? If grace is the unmerited favor of God, there, there is nothing earned or deserved in God's grace. Right? It is the unmerited favor of God. What is mercy? Sometimes grace and mercy are used together. Sometimes they're confused. But what is mercy? If someone were to go to court and they were to stand before a judge... And they had they were rightly guilty, right? 
they were rightly guilty. And let's say that they knew that under the current law, the penalty for their crime was 30 years in prison. Right? If, someone, if that person pleaded to the judge and said, have mercy on me, judge, what would maybe you expect would be his response if he were to be merciful to that person? Withholding justice? Or maybe not withholding justice completely, right? He could still be just in his actions and be merciful. In fact, he needs to be. But maybe gave him a lesser penalty for the crime that he committed, right? That would be a merciful action. What would be other examples of mercy? Would an act of mercy be somebody deserved the death penalty and they didn't receive it? How would you define, how, how else could you define mercy in the realm of justice? Because that's really, it is, it is a, a legal, right, forensic kind of conversation here, right? It's mercy in the face of justice, right? Not giving somebody what they deserve, right? And that's where we see the mercy of God carried out toward us in Christ, for he didn't give us what we deserve. He gave what we deserve, and he put it on Christ, and he poured it out on Christ. But he was merciful to us. We see other examples, loving kindness, uh, the, the hesed love of God, um, merciful kindness. God's, God's approach to undeserving sinners of any type of, of mercy, but yet he delights in mercy. He pours out mercy upon his people. It's great toward us, the psalmist says. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. We know also that mercy is fueled and connected with love, with divine love, right? Um, God's mercy is shown to us, his merciful kindness is shown to us because he loves us. And it is a deep and unending love. <clears throat> but he is also most gracious. Let's Let's look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. You have it? Why don't you read verses 5 and 6? Very good. And so this, once again, we talked last week about that there are some proof texts that, that cross over, right, and that are, 
are true and that they're used to refer to and to support the truth of several of the different attributes of God, right? We saw that Exodus here, 34, verse 6, also being used in regards to his incommunicable attributes as well, as we considered his patience and long-suffering, right? But what is also, excuse me, those are communicable attributes. I'm getting ahead of myself. But what do we see here in this grace? If we look at the bigger picture here of God, right, he's infinite in being, glory, blessedness, perfection. He is ase, he is all-sufficient. He's eternal, he's immutable, he doesn't change. These are all his incommunicable attributes, right? We're painted and we saw the picture that should stir in us great wonder and awe in this awesome, magnificent other being of the living God that we serve, right? He's incomprehensible, he's everywhere present, and he's almighty. But that God, these things are true of him and his being and his actions. But he is also wise, right? He is also holy and just and merciful and gracious. And if you think of these communicable attributes, yes, we're talking about them being communicable because they also are true in some form to us. But I hope that our, our awe and amazement is nonetheless, it's, it's no less uh, stirred up here this morning as we consider all of these things that are most true of him. Right? That we are shown he is the definition of. So he is the most of these things. We are to be wise. We are to be holy as he is holy. We are to be just and fair in our determinations and actions according, according to his word as he is merciful. We are also to be merciful. Right? And as he is most gracious, we also are to be most gracious. But if you look back uh, in Exodus 34, verse 6 there, again we see that list. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, which is patient, abounding in goodness and truth. And he goes on, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay. Do we see the mercy of God, going back to mercy just for a second, do we see the mercy of God in his forgiveness? Yes, we do. We see the mercy of God in his forgiveness. And if you remember our previous discussion, as he says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty, right? When all stand before Christ in his judgment seat, we as his people will stand as those who are redeemed and forgiven. The blood of Christ is what Jesus sees when he looks at us in making a judgment determination. He sees his own blood. He sees that our sins have been forgiven by him because of his work for us. And so indeed, we are forgiven 
because of his work and the application of that work by the Spirit of God to us as we are in Christ. But those who are apart from Christ, they will by no means be cleared. For their sin, their sin still rests upon them. And so he is merciful, but he is gracious. He is, his favor rests upon us. His favor is toward us. Um, and he is for us. But he is also patient, the divines point out. And not only, is, not only is he most gracious, and not only are we then called to extend grace and be gracious to one another, right? But as he is long-suffering, or as he is patient, he also calls us to be the same. But let's consider what is true of him. Look at Romans 2, verse 4. And somebody else grabs 2 Peter 3, 9. Why don't you uh, why don't you back up to verse three? Okay. Verse three. And do you think this, O oh, oh man, who you you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, can you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the rich uh, the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself. Uh, treasuring up for yourself, wrapping the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Hey, thank you very much. Somebody read Second uh, Peter three nine, and then we'll talk more about this. Somebody get Second Peter three nine. So what is not slow to fulfill the promise of not Now this is a passage, right, that um, some of the, not some of them, but the Arminians argue is a reason why we would say that uh, God's atonement is not, or Christ's atonement is not limited. Meaning that he wants, because he says he wants all, right, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that that must be everyone without exception, not all without distinction. Um, but yet, what we see here is what? Who is this letter written to? It's written to God's people, right? What does Peter say? That the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. He is patient toward whom? Toward us, right? Toward us, toward his people. That's who he's speaking to. That's what he's talking about. So the, the clear message here is that God's patience is active and abundant toward us because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All of God's people, all of his elect, will come to repent and turn from their sins and turn unto Christ by the grace and work of God. 
But we see his patience toward us. We see his patience throughout the scriptures. The patience of God is an abundant, abundant, really ever-present theme in his word. Over and over again. Why? Prophet after prophet after prophet throughout the epistles. Why is this true? We see the sinfulness of man, the wickedness of man, the rebellion of God's people against their covenant God. Turning their back on him, following after their own idols. Time and again, Old Testament and New. Falling and breaking his law. And yet God is patient. He is long-suffering with us. That is such, as are all of the other attributes, this is such a wonderful attribute, isn't it? For we must be thankful for his patience. For we don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve harsh, quick justice against us for our many sins. But yet he is patient. And his patience is also connected and fueled by his love. His patience is connected and fueled by his mercy and grace. And we saw that back even in Exodus 34 and that list of those attributes of God and, and what is true of him. And so as God is long-suffering, we too must be long-suffering and patient. Right? Even back to what Will said originally, right? Towards the beginning, right? We are image bearers of the living God. We are the people of God, the redeemed people of God. And as we are in Christ, he calls us to be like Christ. And by his spirit's work, he is sanctifying us to be more and more like Christ. And so again, for repetition and for emphasis, therefore we need to be wise. We need to be holy as he is holy. He has made us holy, definitive sanctification. He has declared us to be holy. He is also making us and growing us in holy progressive sanctification. But he calls us to be holy in all of our conduct, in all of our thoughts, words, and actions. He calls us to be just in our determinations. He calls us to be merciful and kind as he is. He calls us to be gracious to others as he is. He calls us to be patient as he is with us. But he also calls us to goodness. And he gives us the ability to carry out what is good. There is nothing good in ourselves apart from Christ. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. But in Christ, he has called us, he, he has called us to do those good works which he has created and prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2. But let's look at God and his abundant goodness and praise him for it. Psalm 103. Let's look at Psalm 103, verse 8. 
I want to back up even to verse 6. Uh, now, let's, actually, let's back up. Let's go all the way back to the verse 1. Let me just read through 8. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He is for us. He fights our battles. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Our God is abundantly good. The God who is good, again, as we've said before in the other attributes, the God who, if someone were to ask us, how do you know what good is, we can't really rightly define that without pointing to him. As he defines it, he, he shows us what it is and what it's not. All that is not him, right? So it's important as we see the, these, these attributes and, and these communicable attributes and characteristics that we not only see these things as things that we are called to do because as we've already discussed, these things are tied to action. But we see that these are pieces and parts of the very character of God. God is good. Perfectly good. There is no sinfulness. There is no evil. There is no waywardness in him. There can't be. He is good. And he is also abundant in truth. All right, now you notice these words, right, too, that the divines attached here as they were presenting these last two attributes. And they use the word abundant, right? The beginning of these communicable attributes is most, 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 most. But here we see that he's abundant in these things. What is abundance? It's the cup that runneth over. It's, it's above and beyond. It's, it's his abundant riches of grace in his storehouses, and his vast storehouses of grace. It's not just a little bit. It's not just a small amount. But he has much. He has even all in him. He is abundant. In goodness. He is abundant in truth. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Again, we see that as, a, as another uh, mention of that fruit text. And also, uh, we saw Deuteronomy 32, 4 also being a proof for his justice, but it's also for his truth. 
Someone read that again while I grab uh, Psalm 86. Actually, somebody else can grab Psalm 86. Can somebody grab Psalm 86, verse 15? I got that. Okay, perfect. <clears throat> somebody has Deuteronomy 32 again? Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says this. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, without and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Truth sets us free. Right? Truth, again, is tied into the picture of God's justice into his perfection of being and declaring what is right and what is right what is reality what is true separated and contrasted and distinct from what is false from what is a lie right so he's a god of truth and without injustice righteous and upright is he so all that God declares in his word is inerrantly and infallibly true. Right? It is. This is what is real and true in reality without trying to use that word again in the explanation. What we have in the pages of scripture is what is true, because God is abundant in truth. He is truth, and he has declared it. Psalm 86, verse 15. Go ahead and read that. But you, O Lord, are a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and your faithfulness. Okay, very good. Yep. He is abundant in mercy and truth. <clears throat> and if you as we again as you think about this and as I encourage you a bit earlier to uh, consider these things and to grow in your awe and wonder of, of God and who he is. Also have a clear then picture and understanding of what he calls us to do because he is also sharing these with us and he calls us to uh, use, grow in these attributes uh, well and rightly and wisely. Right? But as God is abundant in truth, as he is truth, we are also to be those that embrace truth, that walk according to truth, that speak truth. That's what needs to be true of the Christian. We cannot be liars. Well, we can. But we must not be liars. Right? We must not be those who deceive. We 
must not be those who encourage people to do likewise. We stand for truth because this is our God and we belong to him. He has given this to us to be witnesses, to be witnesses and to be testimony of the truth that is in Jesus. As he has called us to be witnesses and testimonies of God and his very character, who he is and all of his works. He is abundant in truth and we are also to be truth tellers, truth walkers. Very good. Any questions about these communicable attributes or how we are to understand them or how they should be in effect and active in our lives? Um, what God calls us to do and calls us to in regards to them. Man, that is outstanding. I've done it again. All right, very good. Well, uh, let's praise the Lord for who he is and also what he has shared with us. Praise him for that. Praise him for what he's called us to be and do as we are in Christ. Next week, if you want to hang on to your handouts, uh, for those of you um, who will be back, I'll put more, but save some paper. Um, we'll be going through question eight next time, so you can read up on that, and uh, possibly also question nine. So we'll look forward to that next time. Um, Elder Lovelady, would you mind closing us in prayer? Father, in Christ's name, we humble ourselves before you, praising you and thanking you. We thank you, Lord, for this study, the Sunday school. We thank you for the words that Pastor brings us and understanding the deeper things of your word. Understanding who you are and what you are not and what is required of us in your catechism. Some of these things are difficult, and we praise you. We pray that you would guide us and lead us in those difficult things and reveal the obvious things as well. We pray for today in the morning worship service that you would bless us. We pray for our congregation meeting. We lift up this Lord's Day to you. Praising you in all things, we pray. Christ's name. Amen. Amen.